Well, this morning we are going to wrap up our series that we have been in uh, in most of the week since the, the start of the year, specifically when we've been together uh, here in this room. The series has been talking about the authority that Jesus Christ says he has when he declares he has all authority over all things. And so as we go into this final week of the series today, we're going to end with, with one final challenge that I want us to take. And, and really the challenge is that I want us to, to walk out of this series, of these weeks of thinking about these things together, and be committed to live in a broad, all-encompassing application in every sphere of existence with this foundational conviction that Jesus Christ has all authority over all things. So our focus this morning in the sixth and final week is God's authority over culture and society. God's authority over culture and society. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 17 this morning, and we're going to kind of piggyback off of this verse in a couple different ways as we talk about cultural engagement this morning and how the authority of Christ comes to bear on that. The church has always wrestled with the questions about how to exist and what our faith is to look like in terms of cultural engagement in every society and in every age where the church has been. This should not be unexpected to us because Jesus himself tells us in what we call his high priestly prayer that we, his people are, and you've probably heard this phrase, not of this world, even though we are in this world. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verses 14 to 18. Jesus is praying to the Father and says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. For they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Christians must always wrestle with the implications of what Jesus is saying about us in this prayer. This reality that you and I are sent to engage in this world, but not to be of this world. Not to be like this world. Put simply, we, we need to understand as Christians, we are going to be different if we're following Christ. We're going to be different in how we believe and how we think and how we speak and how we act. And those differences, Jesus tells us in this prayer to the Father, will not always be well received. Now, the specifics of how these differences play out, well, they, they look different ways. They kind of change in various cultures, different timings. I mean, if, if you're in a majority culture that has an influence from a Christian worldview, then we're going to be led to some particular applications and answers to those questions of how we are to live that is going to look a little bit different if you're in a minority context under the persecution of pagan rulers. How you and I can engage our culture right now, the answers we can think through in this process, is going to look different in this moment in America than it's looking for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Russia right now, right? But at all times, the truth that Christians universally, no matter where we live and what age we live, the truth that we are called to walk in and proclaim will be, we're promised, diametrically opposed to the world, and it will at times lead to Christians being hated by the world. This is the natural result of living in a fallen world that is in abject rebellion against God. As we've talked about all throughout this series, contrasting what God says, what his authority dictates, and what the world says and what the world does, right? There is clearly a divide between how God's people live in this world when we submit to and follow Christ and how the world, who wants to reject and go against the authority of God, lives in this world. 
But you and I, we are called to be people sent into the world with a mission, with a message, with a purpose. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. It is God making his appeal through us. So, as people who live in a world that's not our home, as the Bible would tell us, people who are like ambassadors sent into a foreign land to represent their Lord and King, Christians have long asked this question, the question we ask of ourselves today, how should my submission to Christ as Lord impact my life in society? Like, how does the fact that I'm here on a Sunday morning, how does the fact that I've come into this place and saying about him being my God, the one I follow, how does that impact what I do outside of these walls? Is my Christianity just this, this room, these songs, these moments, hearing a sermon? Or does my Christianity affect and impact my life in the society, in the day-to-day, in the Monday to Saturday that I have? So to begin this morning, I want to give you the first half of the big idea this week. And you can write this down if you're taking notes and you've got these all written out or you've done the photo thing. That's great. Get this first half of this idea and we're going to unpack it and then I'm going to give you the second sentence as we get to the end of the sermon and we put it all together today. Here's this first part of the big idea this morning that I want us to to get. Christians need to prayerfully and intentionally engage the culture and society where God has placed us for its good and God's glory. We need to grasp that understanding the things we've been talking about for the last several weeks, and some of these things may be ways you've never thought of the world before, but understanding these things and understanding what I've talked about as these different spheres that God has created that exist in human life, and understanding that there's proper authorities assigned into those spheres of life should not lead us to disengagement or disinterest. Let me just kind of pick up on what we talked about in this last sermon two weeks ago when we were in the series here. I pressed in on the fact that we need to understand and know that the sphere of government is a separate and distinct sphere from the church and from the family, right? And so we need to understand where the government's authority lies and what the government's role and purpose is and what the church's role and purpose is and what the family's role and purpose is. And we need to not let one sphere overshadow or take over those other spheres. So we need to understand that just because we are Christians who live in family spheres or, and we're Christians who live in the church sphere, that doesn't mean we have nothing to do with the other spheres of life. No, in fact, we have a great obligation to engage in those other areas of life too. There are cultural and societal spheres of influence that God has created existing in this world by his decree, and you and I were called to engage in those spheres of life as well. So hear me, Christians, we must not leave our Christianity in just the church sphere or the family sphere. That's not to be the extent of where your faith lives out, where your faith is visible, where your faith impacts you. That's what the world wants us to do. It's what the world tells us to do, right? Keep your religious views, your religious beliefs, your religious practice private. As long as they're out of the public arena, you can do whatever you want in your home or in your church building. But don't bring your Christianity into the sphere of government or work or commerce and economics or art or entertainment. Now, those spheres are our spheres. Those spheres are separate. You keep your stuff private and out of the public life, right? But that's not what a proper understanding of these spheres and authority as God has 
it over all things would teach us. Again, to quote Abraham Kuyper's famous words, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. What understanding the world, what understanding all the various spheres of existence is actually designed to teach us as Christians is that God's authority exists over all those things. That he's above all of them. And every single category of existence that exists in this world is under the rule and authority of God himself. Jesus Christ is supreme. So you and I as Christians need to understand government is a sphere of life created by God, but it's a sphere of life accountable to God because he has established it. Art is a sphere of existence that is created by God and is designed ultimately to bring glory to God. Economics and societal structures are under the rule of God and should adhere to his standards of right and wrong in order to bring honor to him. Work is a part of life that God has established and created for humanity, and it must be done in a way that honors and worships him. These are not spheres of life that are disconnected from the rule and authority of God. And so as Christians, they are not spheres of life that we can disconnect from our faith and our religious practice. We need to enter into those spheres, recognizing ultimately they exist for us to operate in and bring glory to God through. As followers of Christ, our submission and our obedience to God and his ways must encompass our actions in every sphere of life. So again, the first part of our big idea is Christians need to prayerfully and intentionally engage the culture and society where God has placed us for its good and God's glory. Now, I fashioned the statement this way because I want us to avoid some pitfalls. I want us to see some dangers. I want us to, to recognize some temptations to get this really wrong, ways that people have gotten this wrong a lot in the past, ways that you and I can get this wrong today. When we talk about cultural engagement, there are ways that we may be tempted to go, and some of you will be tempted to go to one way versus the other way. Maybe at different times you're tempted into these different ways as a whole, but I want us to view them and see them and then put the proper perspective into place that you and I would engage our culture well today. The first danger I think we need to guard against is creating an idea within ourselves and then living out an idea of Christianity against culture. Christianity against culture. This view, this worldview, comes from a mindset that fundamentally sees all human societies and cultures as being enemies of God that Christians must be militant against. And if this is your primary view, that Christianity exists to be against culture, then you're going to go one of two ways. You're either going to see culture and society as something that you need to be protected from or something you need to fight to conquer. I want to talk about both of those different approaches in this worldview. The first impulse, the impulse of protection, is the, the desire to guard against the dangers that we see in culture. And what it can lead to in its most extreme forms is a withdrawal approach to life in this world. Where Christians retreat from culture, retreat from society altogether. Historically, you see this played out in the formation of monastic orders, Right? where monks and nuns would literally go and they'd just build up walls around themselves to keep out the world, right? Or they'd go and live in isolated places away from everyone else and live lives separate, uh, completely disconnected from the people in the culture and society that was nearest to them. They tried to minimize and avoid all engagement 
altogether. Now, did good come from that type of thing? Yes, by God's grace, he used the monastic orders to really preserve and enhance Western culture in some ways. But for the average Christian engaging in that mindset, it began to deteriorate their spiritual life. In more modern times, you don't have to just look to monasteries today. You can see this same principle <coughs> excuse me, lived out in the more extreme forms of Mennonite groups, Anabaptist groups, and Amish groups, right? They withdraw from society, from mainstream culture, and they create their own distinct societies and communities and cultures that have minimal overlap with those around them. All of it's in an effort to do what? To protect themselves, protect their way of life from the dangers that they perceive to be in the broader culture. But even if you and I <clears throat> are not attempting to turn Nelsonville into a Christian sub-community out here and isolate this little part of the country from all the rest of the world, there is still a temptation for us to practice this, uh, this desire to withdraw from the world principally. Here's what I think it can look like in you and I's lives. It looks like creating our own social circles that only allow people who are like-minded and similar to us into interaction with our lives. It can look like the temptation to refuse to engage our community and work for the good of other people who may not be quite like us. It looks like when we're not compassionate, we're not benevolent, we don't extend hospitality to the outsider. It can look like condemning things that we don't agree with, but never advocating, never promoting, never working to develop the good things that the Lord has provided for humanity. This danger has to be resisted, this temptation to just withdraw and try to isolate and protect ourselves from the culture and, you know, let it go to hell in a handbasket, but we're going to stay safe, right? No, see, the problem is we can't just abandon and isolate from society because what did God call us to be? Ambassadors in this world, right? Proclaimers of the message of truth, lights in the dark world reflecting his light in the darkness, God tells his people to engage where we are, to take a phrase that my wife likes to use. He calls us to flourish where we are planted. Yes, we're not to be at home in this world. We are to understand we are pilgrims here. We are ambassadors on assignment. But hear what God would tell his people who were sent away from their homes into exile in about his plan for them in that exile away from home. God had a plan, had a work for them to do in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what God says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Right? This is a call, clearly, to engage, to plant roots, to build, to cultivate, to intentionally, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Hear me, God's people cannot faithfully do that if we're just running and hiding and trying to isolate from our communities. That action is the action of a very poor ambassador, isn't it? One who's being very unfaithful to their Lord, not obeying the call to go into a place in the world and proclaim a message, rather to hide and to pull back. This is not a faithful action for a Christian to take. 
So this is one danger of seeing our, our Christianity as something just against the culture, is it can lead to a temptation for us to withdraw. And maybe that's something that appeals to your heart, to your thinking in some ways. Or maybe you do view Christianity as against culture, but you're on the other end of the extreme. And it's not so much you want to protect yourself from the culture, it's you want to conquer the culture. There's a confrontational outworking of this Christianity against culture idea where instead of withdrawing, you become obsessed with trying to fight and conquer the culture and make it align to external Christian values no matter what. So historically, we saw this attempted in what we call Christendom. The idea being played out that literally we wanted to place the church and Christian morality over everything, and the church would be at the center of all of it. And so you couldn't produce art without the church's approval. You couldn't do certain kinds of work without the church's approval. You couldn't spend money on certain things without the church's approval. And they tried to make the church and Christian morality extend over everything and control everything at a small level. And all throughout the Middle Ages, that's what the Roman Catholic Church tried to do in dominating the culture. But the results were not good. Christianity, in the midst of that approach, became quite distorted. The gospel was lost entirely in that system. A false idea of salvation, a false idea of what it meant to be one of God's people became widespread. But the idea of Christendom didn't just die historically. There's modern examples that we can see of this approach as well. You see it in many of the fundamentalist groups who are always angry, always trying to fight, constantly condemning people and groups in society that they don't like, right? These are the people who attach the name of Christ to their angry protests, to their hatred of people that don't agree with them, to the political attacks, to their attempts to destroy groups that they don't like. And again, there's a danger for us to fall into this idea of we're going to conquer, we are going to crush the culture. And I think for many of us, it looks like angry and antagonistic Facebook or Twitter posts. It looks like calling people names insulting those who don't share our worldview or advocate the same positions we do. It looks like treating people as if they're just enemies instead of seeing them as, yes, rebels against God, but those who are in need of rescue and redemption and knowledge of the truth through the gospel message we as ambassadors have been entrusted to proclaim. We have the message of freedom in Christ and we are called to go to the slaves of the kingdom of darkness and share that message. The message and the ministry that we've been given in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 there, verses 18 and 19, tells us, For Christ has reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Not the message of go and conquer the culture, the message of to proclaim of the gospel. We're not sent into societies to destroy them. We're sent as ambassadors with the message of the gospel to proclaim the salvation of our Savior and to appeal to those who are far from God, come and be reconciled to him as we ourselves have been reconciled to him. So there's this idea of, the, of Christianity being something just set against culture. And briefly, I want to touch on the other other extreme side of it, which is the idea of, of people trying to create a Christianity of culture, where rather than withdraw from culture, rather than attack culture, is we want to create a Christianity that fits into culture. This is the mindset that always, always tries to conform its view of Christ and the Christian faith to the values of whatever culture it is in, so that it will be seen as acceptable, respectable, not different, not challenging. 
So in ancient times, you saw this idea of, the, of forming a Christianity of culture played out in religious syncretism, right? Where groups would just take Jesus and, ah, oh, Jesus is God and he should be worshipped. Great, let's put him into the pantheon of other gods that we worship and sacrifice to. But in modern times, you see this in a little bit different way, not so much in religious syncretism as we saw historically, but in the transforming of Jesus into whatever the cultural values are at that moment, right? So you see this when Jesus becomes a feminist. Jesus becomes a social justice warrior. Jesus is the anti-patriarchal leader. Jesus was a socialist. Jesus was an affirming ally of homosexuality or transgenderism, right? Jesus is distorted into whatever values those people in that culture themselves hold to. They simply try to take Jesus and form him into something that works with their belief. But all that is is a twisting of Jesus from who he really is. To be more clear, all that really is is creating a false idol and attaching the name of Jesus to it. So we see this in every single church that has embraced any aspect of the LGBTQ plus movement and tried to become an ally to those people. In reality, what they're doing is not becoming an ally to them. They're becoming apostate enemies of God. It looks like Christians who are becoming, to use their language, woke. Embracing things like critical race theory, intersectionality, the concepts of whiteness, and all this redefinition of racism that can be for anything. You don't like me, you did something I didn't agree with, then you must be a racist, right? Any of these things that stem out of the social justice movement is a result of someone trying to form a Christianity of culture that has taken the name of Jesus and attached it to some false idol. There's no redeeming value in the position of trying to create a Christianity of culture. It's just a path to apostasy and rebellion and false religions because what did Jesus say in his prayer that we started with, John 17 there? I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. So if that is true as Jesus prays, then any attempt to craft a version of Christianity that's loved by the world is inherently unfaithful to Jesus himself. If they hate our Lord and he says they will hate us and we say, no, we can make them love us, then we are no longer following the Christ of the scriptures. Whatever we create as we form a Christianity of culture is a different and false religion that's masquerading under the name of Christianity. So if we can't take a posture of Christianity against culture and we can't take a posture of making a Christianity of culture, how should we view Christianity and culture? Well, we should view it as Christ above culture. This is the way I've said it all throughout this series, is we need to look and see that our God, Christ himself, stands above culture. We need to be convinced of the Christian view that we've been unpacking throughout this entire series, that Jesus has all authority over all things. So all spheres of life that exist are to bring him glory. This is what's behind those verses I so often cite and bring into our thinking in this place, Colossians 3.17 tells us, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As Christians, we must strive to honor God in all spheres of life. So as practical examples of what that means culturally, what that means in terms of society, how we seek to honor God, let's start by talking briefly about the sphere of work. And this applies to you and your work, no matter what vocation you have. We cannot give in to the temptation. We cannot believe the messaging of the world that tells us that what you do vocationally should somehow be disconnected from your Christian faith. It's not. 
the sphere of work that God has created and placed you in is a primary way in which God wants to use you to bring good into the society that you live in and bring glory to him. God expressly tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving, you are working for, he says, the Lord Christ. How you and I go about our work, again, whatever work that may be, from sales to teaching to coaching to management to building something physically, whatever work, whatever vocation we do, how we do that can bring glory to God and bring good into our society. The integrity we demonstrate in our work, the skills that we develop by God's grace, the production of our efforts, whatever it is we're forming, whether that's physical, tangible things that we're building or it's shaping the lives of other people through teaching or instruction or that's knowledge that's being created and shared. Whatever we are producing by our efforts and the humility and reliance upon God that we demonstrate in our work Those things are felt and seen by those around us and can be used by God to shape and influence the society. And the other side of it's true. If as a Christian you are a type of person who goes to work in a lazy manner, a dishonest manner, or gives yourself to, to illegitimate work producing things detrimental to society and culture, then you're not being a good witness to God. You're not honoring him in that work. Work provides a sphere for us to cultivate things the way God cultivates things. It provides a context for us to share about who our God is with those around us. And we can see him and refer to him as the ultimate provider, the ultimate sustainer of this world, the one whom we ultimately serve and work for. It can be a a sphere of life that we glorify God in and we use to further the mission of proclaiming who our God is. Likewise, we should strive to honor God in the sphere of art and entertainment, trying to create, trying to appreciate and properly use those things. God himself is creative, right? Look around at this amazing universe that we live in. You see the creativity of God all around us, and he's given us the ability to be creative too. So when art, music, or entertainment items reflect the beauty of creation or touch on the themes of goodness and love and virtue and honor, you and I can embrace those things and use those things to glorify God. Art can be a way of us worshiping God. Philippians 4.8 tells us, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. So you and I can look at a beautiful painting. We can enjoy a wonderful piece of music. We can enjoy entertainment at the movies. If they're touching on these good things and allowing us to to lift our minds up to think on these types of things, then we are properly using art and entertainment to glorify God. We should support the production of good things like that in this sphere of life. And we should appreciate them personally in line with this command. And we should be intentional to use them to share the beauty and the themes of the gospel and who God is with others. That's what art should ultimately enable us to do. And we should recognize the power and wisdom of God as we approach the sphere of the sciences and the study of this universe and the things within it. This should not be disconnected from God. Christians should not fear science. Science is not incompatible with theology. What's incompatible with Christian theology is materialism and humanism. 
And yes, many scientists today embrace those worldviews, but it is entirely possible for a Christian, from a Christian worldview, to do science and scientific study. I mean, historically, most of the great scientific developments that we have had came from people who had a Christian worldview, who entered into the study of the sciences in order to understand this world that God has made, the things in this world that God has made, so that they could better glorify him. And we can do that today, too. Christians absolutely can and should engage in science from a posture of submission to God as our creator and a desire to understand and glorify him through examining what he's made. I mean, just, just for instance, looking at the creation should produce worship in us as we ponder it. Listen to the worship produced in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 8. The psalmist writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, he asks the question, What is man that you are mindful of him? Well, the son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. As he looks at creation, as he does this, this rudimentary scientific examination of what God has made, he's in awe of God. And Psalm 8 says, how marvelous and how majestic are you and is your name, O God. This should lead to worship. As we study and learn and understand the things God has made and how they work, it should lead us to worship him. And it should give us opportunities to talk about him and his creative and sustaining power. In our own home, we, we have a family devotional that we go through, and it's actually drawn from this. It's from scientific facts about the world that God has created and then applying those things to the worship of God. So we, we talked just this week, uh, just yesterday, as we had breakfast, about how birds know to migrate. And scientists don't know how, how do birds know exactly when to, it's time to migrate and where to go. And, and Tobias says, well, of course, they just remember where they were born. I said, buddy, do you remember where you were born? Like, well, I think I was, born, I was born in Springfield, right? I said, right. I said, okay, so you remember where you were born. Do you remember how to get there? Like, right now, okay, buddy, it's time to go home to where you were born. Can you get there? It's like, well, no. I said, well, how do we think birds and animals, you know, they, they don't have that knowledge built in. There's something else there. What, what is that? What's the hand of God? He's made them in this way to be able to do this and leads them and guides them. This is what the Bible tells us. We look that he's the one who knows as the sparrow flies, he's the God in control of that, right? And so we use science to lead to this conversation of faith, and we as Christians should do that. We should engage in this sphere of life too. Now, for the sake of time, we've got to wrap up this sermon and this whole series. So above all, what I want us to get is that across every sphere of existence, the common way in which you and I should apply our Christian faith is by looking for and seizing upon the opportunities to live out the mission of proclaiming who God is and what he has done to others. This is primary for us. This is primary for us. Primarily, the main thing you and I are called to do, no matter what sphere of existence we're in, whether it's at work, whether it's enjoying art or entertainment, whether it's studies of science or doing other things like that, the primary mission you and I have been given is to proclaim who God is and what God has done and work to see the salvation of sinners through that proclamation. So that's the final part of the big idea for today. The last part I want us to take to heart in this series. You and I, when we talk about cultural engagement, we think about what we're attempting to do in cultural engagement, is that we must seek the transformation of culture through the salvation of sinners individually rather than through production, power, or politics. 
What I mean by that is when we think about cultural engagement, what we all are wanting to do with the engagement we have in our culture is to see good things produced, right? We want to see results. But that's right and good and honoring to God until the idea of we want to produce certain results takes center stage and distracts us from the primary mission. If we adopt techniques or we place our hope in methods, it will ultimately lead to disappointment and the danger of our focus drifting away from the primary mission that we have. So I, I want to be careful here in what I say, but I also want to be direct in how we apply it. It is good for Christians to try and change the culture and society that they live in through productive involvement in every sphere of life. Christians can create good art. Christians can produce God-honoring entertainment. We can craft goods and do work that produce good things that benefit others. And we can even engage in political processes to try and change society through those mechanisms. Those are all good things for us to do. But the most important and the only lasting way that real change in society will be sustained is when we stay focused on the main mission that we have been given. When you and I act as faithful ambassadors, proclaiming the message of the gospel, calling people to hear about and receive reconciliation to God, then we're operating properly as Christians in society. Changing the culture and society in any meaningful way, any God-honoring way, is not going to come through social media posts. It's not going to come through you joining political campaigns, going to rallies, or protests. It's not just going to come because you and I buy good art or invest in the production of good entertainment or just being successful in your work. You should honor God in each of those spheres, but if you want to bring your Christianity truly into those spheres, it's to live in those spheres as an ambassador with a message. You cannot think that the things you produce are going to be able to reorient society to godliness. We cannot try to use power and force to implement deep and lasting moral change. We cannot fall to the lie that through politics we can solve all the world's problems. None of those things deal with the real issue, and that is the human heart. That's where the problem really is. Sin may be restrained temporarily by the efforts that we can put forth in politics or art or other spheres of life, but the only way real lasting change happens is when God does his work of changing the sinner's heart. And societies will only be transformed when sinners become saved saints who begin to live differently in all those other spheres. If cultural engagement apart from the gospel is all you do, if you're trying to change society or culture through your production or through the use of power or through reliance on politics, if that's where your hope for cultural change lies, you are missing the most important component of applying your faith in this world. And hear this, at the end when you stand before God, you will be seen as an unfaithful servant, as an ambassador who failed in the task of sharing, proclaiming the message of the Lord who sent you into this world. He will say, you tried to live as if you were of the world. I sent you into the world with a mission, a message to proclaim. So let that bear in on us Work hard, do good things, produce good things in society, engage in the culture, but never lose the focus that your primary calling is to proclaim a message, to live a ministry of reconciliation 
proclaim each other who God is, what God has done, and how they themselves can be transformed by his saving power. That's what we are called to do. That is how we will see societies changed in any lasting, meaningful way. So as the worship team comes to lead us in a song as we respond to the Lord's word, my hope and my prayer for this whole series has been that you and I would begin to think more biblically about the meaning and implications of Jesus declaring he has all authority over all things. As he says in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Christians, we need to be prayerfully and intentionally engaging the culture and society where God has placed us for its good and for God's glory. But we must seek the transformation of culture through the salvation of sinners individually rather than the production or power or politics that our world would call us to rely on. So may we be people who live our lives recognizing his authority in each and every sphere of life. And may we be people who bring our Christianity to bear in every engagement we have in every sphere of life. Let's take a few moments to pray, to respond to the Lord, and to worship together as the team leads us in one final song. Lord, we thank you for this great gift of being able to trust you to rely upon you in every circumstance, to know that you stand as sovereign ruler over all spheres of life in this world. That no matter what we do, no matter where we go, no matter what engagement we set our minds and our efforts into, may it be something we do in order to glorify you and see your name proclaimed, Lord, and help us be people who are seen as faithful ambassadors, faithful with the message that you have given to us, the calling and the commission you have given to us to proclaim who you are and what you have done to a dying world that desperately needs the hope and the light, the reconciliation of the gospel. We thank you for your love for us, your faithfulness and kindness to us when we do not deserve it. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we go this week. You would bless each and every heart here, Lord, with a greater sense of reliance upon you, of trust in you, and of strength from you for the mission that you have called us to be about. It's in your beautiful, powerful name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen.